Mothers, as we know, play a critical role in the spiritual formation of children, but not just mothers. Fathers do as well, and we've seen that picture even here this morning through the parent-child dedication. Uh, parents are the key faith influencers in the lives of children. But really, no one else has that same impact or has the opportunity to make the same impact that a parent does. I love being a dad. My my wife loves being a mom. We love it so much. We're, we're doing it again here in October, as you know. And so number three, and uh, it's a boy, by the way. And uh, so we're excited about that. And we wouldn't trade that for anything, but we also wouldn't trade the fact that we know that it is our responsibility uh, to be the key faith influencers in their life. And we have to take ownership of that and steward that well because we have a unique and rare opportunity. And as a church, we want to come alongside as a faith family and be a family for families, right? We're a faith family uh, that comes together. We should operate. The Bible speaks the church in that terms. And uh, so we're a place for families to come together to, to love the Lord together. But we want to resource parents, not replace parents. And uh, so we want to be very intentional about that. And it means many things, but it definitely means we have to equip parents um, to be godly parents and to raise their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Because we can have the best children's ministry in town. You can, man, you could have all the bells and stops and whistles and programs, and you could just knock it out of the park. But if you don't properly disciple and equip parents, you're in a sense, it's kind of like throwing seeds in the wind to some degree. Because what happens at home has a greater chance to make the greatest impact more than a couple of hours or so during the week at church. This is important, and that's important. And those two things have to work together, and they work best when they work together. So this morning, I want to encourage and challenge all of our parents, not just our mothers, and the future parents that are in this room, and the grandparents who are in this room, to live their faith and embrace their role, whatever that might be, in your family dynamic. So we're kind of detouring out of Acts, but we're doing it by starting in Acts. So Acts chapter 16, if you have a Bible, uh, we're going to jump way ahead. Uh, we're supposed to be in chapter 6, so this morning we're jumping way ahead to chapter 16, and we're going to use it as a launching pad to another passage. So Acts chapter 16. In Acts 16, Luke introduces us to a guy by the name of Timothy. Paul wrote two letters to this guy named Timothy. He was an apprentice of Paul's. Uh, he did a lot of uh, great work for the kingdom, uh, much of that done in Ephesus. Uh, and Paul wrote two letters, First and Second Timothy to Timothy, uh, great letters that we have. Uh, where we, we, we learn great truths. Uh, one of the more famous passages in there is about how we, uh, Paul tells him how the word of God is, is inspired. It's not man's words. It's, it's God's word. And some, some of these great truths that we love, and the Bible tells us other places, but that really spells out explicitly there. We have that because Paul was writing Timothy, kind of his young preacher boy, his apprentice, into faith and encouraging him. But we're introduced to Timothy for the first time in the Bible in Acts chapter 16. So look with me in verse 1 through 5. Verses 1 through 5. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well known by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, but Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So let's talk about what's going on here. Paul has been through this part of town, been through this area before, all the way back in chapters 13 and 14. A couple of years later or so, he comes back through the area, and he's introduced to this guy named Timothy. And Timothy had apparently come to faith in Christ between Paul, either while in Paul's first visit or between visits. And he is growing up in the faith. He's maturing in faith. He's showing a lot of promise. The, the other believers there hold him in high regard. And Paul says, I'm going to take this guy, and I'm going to start taking him with me on my journeys and disciple him even more. 
And we see Timothy's mother here. Um, we're not told her name at this point, but she is obviously a believer, and she apparently, it seems, most believe, came to faith the first time Paul came through, that she was a Jew who was looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. She believed God was sending Messiah. She was waiting on Messiah. She was probably praying for Messiah. She was a faithful Jew. And so that when Paul came to town saying, the Messiah has come, his name is Jesus, and shares the gospel with her, she believes. And Timothy either believed at that point or was led to faith by his mother after that. We can't be certain. But then his father, all we learn about his father is that he is Greek. And what the Bible's telling us here is he was a Gentile. He was Greek. And that's why Timothy's being circumcised in this passage. As Paul's taking him and he's going to be doing ministry among Jews. And that could be a holdup. That could be a hindrance for them. Um, and so because he says he's Jewish because he has a Jewish mother, but he's not been circumcised because he had a Greek father. And so Paul has him circumcised. Now, his father could have been dead at this point. We don't know. Some believe that he is because of the past tense that's used. Because it says his father was a Greek. But we can't be for certain, but it does seem for certain that his father was likely an unbeliever. But he had a godly mom who loved God, and when she heard about Jesus, who loved Jesus as well, and pointed him towards the Lord Jesus. And then over in 2 Timothy chapter 1, we learn a little bit more about Timothy's background and family. So it's going to be on the screen for you, or you can turn there in your Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child. <clears throat> Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. As I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. So you sense that Paul here has a a camaraderie, a love, a deep affection for Timothy. He treated him like a son in the faith. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So we learn a little more about Timothy. We learn that his mother's name is Eunice, and he had a grandmother who loves the Lord as well, and her name is Lois, and that the faith that he had first dwelt in them. Well, how is it, as it seems, we look at this, we can tell that they had obviously impacted him. That's why Paul is encouraging him with these words and this spiritual heritage in his family. How is it they made this great impact? And if you look, flip over a couple chapters to chapter 3, we learn a little bit more about Timothy's childhood. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Paul tells Timothy, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood... You have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So they had taught him the scriptures, the sacred writings is a word that they use to describe the Old Testament. And they had used the Old Testament to ready his heart to receive Messiah when he, and believe on the Messiah when he came. Which is what happened when Paul came to town preaching that Jesus is the Messiah and has risen from the dead. And what we learn from these women, Eunice and Lois, and from Timothy's life, is that parenthood ultimately is a missional endeavor. There's a mission involved. The first people we must evangelize are our children and our grandchildren. Parenthood, motherhood, and fatherhood, grandparenthood, is not disconnected from, but rather a part of your role in God's mission for your life as a believer. 
It's not some disconnected thing. When we talk about sharing our faith or living our faith, it's, there, there's not a disconnection there. That, like we do that out in the world and in the home. It's just kind of we take it for granted. No, it starts in the home. And so I want to just give you kind of two big ideas um, from Timothy's situation to help apply to our situation to learn how we can li best live on mission uh, in the home. Number one is we must possess and live a genuine faith. You have to possess, have ownership of, and live out a genuine faith. In Acts 16, we're not even told Timothy's mom's name, but we're told she's a believer. Right? That's, as far as Luke's concerned, that's all you really need to know. That's what he knew about her. Not that he didn't know her name, but he wanted you to know that she was a believer. While he grew up in a home maybe where the dad wasn't, she was a believer and became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that she was in Christ was more important than anything else that he could share with us. That's the most important thing about anyone. In 2 Timothy 1.5 that we read, Paul calls Timothy's faith sincere. He says, Timothy, your faith is sincere, and this faith that you have first dwelt in your grandmother and your mother. So their faith was sincere as well. Timothy was holding a sincere faith that was first in the generation before him and the generation before that. So we have to ask a couple of questions. The first question is, is, do I possess, do you possess a genuine faith? The word sincere there that describes Timothy's faith, faith and thereby his grandmother and mother's faith means non-hypocritical. That's what it means in the purest sense of the word. It's a non-hypocritical faith. That's what it means by sincere. It means genuine. Timothy had a real faith like his mother and grandmother, not some artificial faith, glossed over faith. There's a difference in a say-so believer and a, what I call a show-you-so believer. Right? We've got a lot of say-so believers, and that's people that say they're Christians, who verbally acknowledge that they believe Christ is Lord, who verbally acknowledge that they believe the gospel, that they verbally acknowledge that they are a Christian. Maybe they go to church. Maybe they don't go to church. But there's millions of these people in our nation. There are many of these people all over our city. And some of them are gen have genuine faith in Christ, but... And we read the Bible, what we understand is that there's a reason the Bible talks about a sincere faith is because there is a such thing as a faith that's insincere. That's a say-so faith, but it's not a show-you-so faith. It's what James called a faith without works. Or you might call it a faith without life change, a faith without evidence. And we have to understand that faith without works is dead, as James said. In other words, we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, but genuine saving faith in Christ, as it has been said, is never alone. It's always accompanied with life change and works in his name, living out our faith practically. So we have to beware of a generic nominal faith, a faith in name only, a faith that makes no real impact, a faith that's just a mirage, a faith that's hypocritical, a faith that's like playing a role because it, it, it's all over our country. It's all over our churches. It's all over the place. It's all over the Bible. And we'll see it as we go through Acts together that it pops up. That we talked last week with Ananias and Sapphira about hypocrisy in their life. And we don't know if they were just hypocrites in general or had a hypocritical moment. But we have to be aware of hypocrisy. And there are a lot of hypocrites in and out of the church, people that associate with Christ in name but aren't really his. And the thing is, you can't, if when it comes to in the context of parenting, in the context in the home, usually you can't fool people forever. Yesterday we were at uh, uh, not yesterday, day before yesterday, we were at Disney World with the kids. And uh, Cannon and Eden went to meet Chewbacca for the first time. Now, if you've never met Chewbacca at Disney World, you need to know, this is why I'm meeting Chewbacca. 
okay? Uh, it looks like the real deal. He's like seven feet tall. He makes the noises that I'm not going to attempt to make this morning and humor you with. And, of course, you know, they're kind of freaked out because to a four-year-old and a two-year-old, this is the real deal. And they don't even watch Star Wars, but they've seen the characters and have the stuffed animals and all that sort of stuff. And we couldn't get Cannon to even high-five him, but he was mesmerized with his feet, right? And so these giant feet and ugly toes that he wanted to touch, but I won't high-five you, right? And so, but when they're at Disney World, it's reality for them. It just seems like reality. You can't even really get them to understand that, what's real and what's pretend. And even though we talk about all that, we're pretty upfront about all that. There's just, at four, you don't make that connection. But there's going to come a time and place where for both of them, they're going to look at Disney World like we look at Disney World. It's pretend, it's fun, but it's different than what it is when you're four and what it is when you're 14 or 40 because they grow up. And when they grow up, their perception gets better, and they begin to understand better, and they begin to understand all the different things and the way we do life and the difference in, in authenticity and authenticity and all that sort of stuff. And in the same way, when our kids are little, it's easy to fool them if we go to church. Maybe we say a prayer over the meal. We generally say nice things about God. To a child, that seems like a genuine, authentic faith, even if it's not. But as they grow up and as they get older and as their senses get a little more heightened to what reality is, they will get better at spotting fake and you won't be able and I won't be able, we won't be able to fake it forever if we're faking it. So part of missional parenthood is, of course, having genuine, authentic, real faith in Christ. And listen, parenthood's not easy. Nothing other than that and marriage will show you your need for a savior like marriage and parenthood. It exposes your sinfulness. Because you were in a home with other sinners and you're raising, you guess what? You have begotten little sinners. Because you're a sinner and I'm a sinner. Happy Mother's Day, right? <laughs> They're all sinners. And nothing. There's a reason. Listen, God has designed the family in such a way he loves it. And at the same time, it is a great, it is a great means for your sanctification in Christ. It's a great way when you're, when you're in a home of God using that to point out your own inconsistency, inconsist, inconsistencies, if I can say it, and your own failures and your own sins and your need for Christ. If you are a parent and you do not see your need for Christ, I don't understand how you think. <laughs> it, it, it shows me my need for Christ. I know I'm sinful. I, I know I need help. I know I'm weak. I know there's a lot that I can't do. And fatherhood reveals that to me. And motherhood and fatherhood reveals that to us. We need a Savior. So we need to know that we have a genuine faith in Christ because we want our kids to have genuine faith in Christ. It's important that we portray that for them. And that means we have to ask another question. This is when we have inconsistencies in our life, do we deal with them? Because even if we have a genuine, authentic faith, a real faith in Christ, do we deal with the inconsistencies that will come up in our own life when we, find, when we realize that there's sin in our life? Or we did something or said something or portrayed something that's not showing in that moment that we believe Christ is Lord and is the most precious thing in all the universe. Listen, we're raising children today in what, we, what people have called post-Christian America. 
And that doesn't mean that at one time America was, was really Christian. It's always been a group, a, a country made up of both unbelievers and believers. But the Judeo-Christian influence on our culture is not what it once was. It was obviously stronger at some point, but, then, but it's never completely influenced our culture. You say, oh, back in the good old days. What good old days are you talking about? There hasn't really been a completely good old days in the history of our nation. We're an imperfect nation. And we can go back and we can talk about all kinds of things in our history over the course of the last few hundred years and see those inconsistencies. It's never been perfect. But now we're dealing with something that we haven't really dealt with before. We, we come through one end and we, 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 we're growing in some areas. We get better at some things. But then there's other areas that we find out. Because we're not a, a Christian nation. We're a nation made up of all kinds of different people. Some are Christian. Some are lost. Some are Buddhist. Some are Muslim. Some are atheists. Some are agnostic. Some are pretend fake phony Christians. And so that makes up for a nation that's filled with all sorts of things. And that begins to shape our culture. And so our culture is very pluralistic. And our culture is very... Um, is becoming increasingly what we would call secular. And here's what I mean. Here's what I'm getting at. Either we will disciple our children or the culture will disciple our children. But they will be discipled. They will be discipled. The water, the, the water is flowing. The stream is going. They're in the water. And constantly culture is flowing and eroding and changing, just like they're a rock in the stream. Things are happening. And so we can choose to invest in, pour into, and disciple and point our children towards God's truth, or we can allow culture to do it. Because culture knows what it believes about sexuality. Culture knows what it believes about marriage. Culture knows what it believes about justice. Culture, all these sort of things. Culture has an idea about all these sort of things, but do we know what we believe about those things and what God says about those things? We should. We have to possess and live out our faith in front of our family, not disconnected from. Godly parenting begins with being a godly person. You can't be a godly parent or a Christ-like parent if you're not a Christ-like person. Is your faith obvious to your children and grandchildren, to your family and friends? Is the Lord Jesus preeminent in your life? Does it appear that way to others? Do your children see God's house as significant in your life? Just questions to ask yourself, to constantly ask yourself. Is it an add-on or something that's at the heart? Listen, our faith may be shallower, but it will never be deeper than our commitment to the church. You can't guarantee the faith of your children. You can't guarantee that they'll possess a genuine, sincere faith. You can't do that. Only God can change your heart. You can't save your child. You can't take your faith and give it to your child. It's not by osmosis. It can't really rub off on your child, but you can sow in the life of your children and grandchildren. And so we've got to be sure that we're sowing the right things. And that starts with possessing and living a genuine faith. And then secondly, you've got to know and own your family role. You've got to know your role in the family and own it. Notice Paul points out to Timothy the generational nature of his faith. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother. This is in 2 Timothy 1, Lois. And your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. The point was not that because of their faith was real, that that must mean that his is real. The point was to remind him of his personal context. Timothy needed encouragement. Paul writes 2 Timothy to encourage him to live out boldness because he was struggling in some areas and he wanted him to live without fear. And in chapter 1, he starts by taking him home to where it all started, to his roots. And he wanted Timothy to see his roots were deep. That he had been taught this from childhood, that he had a godly heritage. 
He took him back to where his faith began. And that was to encourage him. Eunice and Lois were believing Jews who were genuine in their faith and waiting on the Messiah. And they taught Timothy, according to 3.15 in 2 Timothy that we read earlier, God's truth in the Old Testament, helping to ready him to receive Christ when Christ was preached to him. And here's what you need to understand. God intends for his truth, the truth of his gospel, the truth of his word, to be passed from generation to generation. It's always been God's intent for it to flow from generation to generation. All the way back in the Old Testament, you see it in Psalm 145.4, one generation shall commend your works, the psalmist says, to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. In the New Testament, in Acts 2.39, when Peter stands up and preaches at Pentecost, and he's preaching to these people about how the Holy Spirit has come in power, and the promise of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Gospels for them as well, he says, for the promise is for you and your children. And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. From the moment of the first invitation, he's saying it's for you, but it's not just for you. It's for your kids too. Right there from the moment he invites them to Christ. This is generational stuff. God wants this to go from generation to generation to generation. And God's plan has always been, his primary tool has always been parents to accomplish that task. The home. Deuteronomy 6 that we read during our parent-child dedication talks about that in the Old Testament where, where the parents are charged with talking about God's truth, teaching God's truth, keeping God's truth in His Word in front of children, having a plan for that and doing that. In Ephesians 6, 4, you say, well, that's Old Testament, Pastor. Well, let's go to the New Testament. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's a command. We're commanded to Bring our children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Teach them about God and His truth. That's how God gets truth from one generation to another, primarily, is through the family unit. Paul Tripp writes in his book, Parenting, 14 Principles That Can Radically Change Your Family, that parents need to see themselves as ambassadors and not owners of our children. He talks about the difference between ownership parenting and ambassador parenting. Let me read you a quote. He writes, Ownership parenting is motivated and shaped by what parents want for their children and from their children. He writes, Parenting is not first about what we want for our children or from our children, but about what God in grace has planned to do through us in our children. So we don't own them. They're not ours. They're God's. They're made in His image. And we're stewards for a time, and we are ambassadors, and we are representing, and ambassadors are representative. We are representing God and Christ, if we're Christians, to them. That's a big responsibility in the lives of our kids. And then he gives four tests to see which type you are. Are you an ownership, or are you an ambassador parent? Four areas to examine. First is your identity. He says, owner parents tie their self-worth up in their kids. Right? They fail and they're crushed. <clears throat> Ambassador parents have their identity and purpose in Christ and are then motivated to parent out of that identity of who I am in Christ, representing Christ to my children. That's way different than tying all my emotional energy up on what, what my kid's good at and not good at because my identity's tied to that. Kids weren't designed to live that way. To bear that. No child was. No baby, no toddler, no teenager, no grown adult was designed to bear that weight. 
nor was your spouse. Work is another area to test. Do you think it is your job, do you think it is your work as a parent to turn your kid into something? Many parents do. Or do you realize that you haven't the power to change your child and that only Jesus can? It's an area to examine. Success is a third area. What do you view as success in parenting? Owners have their lists like grades and performance, manners, whether their kid's a winner or not, whatever that means. Things your kids do that validate success to you in your eyes and make you feel successful as a parent. As a parent. Whereas ambassadors strive to be faithful, doing what they know God's desire is, knowing that ultimately they have to trust God with the results and that the most important thing is not some of these other things we mentioned, not that they don't matter, but the most important thing is that their child knows and receives God's truth. And then fourthly, reputation. Owners treat children like trophies, hanging their reputation on the child. But parenting is supposed to be humbling, and we're supposed to realize that the only trophy we should desire is for our children to be trophies of God's grace. But we see it every day with parents. It all, and it's something we battle with parents, right? Because we're raising them, we're investing in them, and we feel like they're a reflection on us, so we want them to do well because we, we want what's best for them. And if sometimes if we're not careful, we'll realize it's because we want to feel better about ourselves. And what he's saying here is you've got to take that part out of it. You've got to realize we're ambassadors. We're here to represent Christ. It's that they glorify Christ, not that they glorify us. It's supposed to be the goal. And we want to represent Christ to them so that they are drawn to Christ, not that they have hurdles in their life to get over before they're willing to hear the claims of Embrace our role as an ambassador. See, the home is like a gospel school. It's inside the home that children are shaped and formed and influenced in life and godliness. But kids must be taught the gospel truth. And they must be see it displayed in the home. And God has designed the home to function in this way. Even your marriage is designed to be a gospel displaying tool for your children and for the world. In Ephesians 5, 31 through 33... After telling husbands to love their wife like Christ loves the church and telling the, the wife to respect her husband, he says there, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He's saying there's something about your marriage that is connected to the gospel, to Jesus and his church. And he says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Why? Because you are... Painting a picture for your children and for the world of the gospel. And you don't want to paint a bad picture. Because when a husband berates and demeans or disrespects and doesn't love his wife as Christ loves the church and the children see that, what you say to your children is Jesus doesn't love you. I'm not saying it's true. It's not true. But that's what you preach. That's what I preach if we do that. It's important that we understand that this morning, that our marriages are important in communicating and painting an accurate picture of the gospel to our children. Loving your wife, respecting your husband, these, the relationship between the husband and wife was designed for a greater purpose than to make you happy. That's why when someone says, well, we're going to go this way or we're going to do that or we've decided to do this because we just want to be happy. That's not the point of your marriage. 
God wants you to be happy, sure, I believe that. But first, He wants you to be holy. And He wants you to represent Christ. And if we do those things, all the other stuff begins to fall into line. And all this is part of how we, part of the family dynamic and the family as a gospel school. But we need to understand our own personal family dynamics and embrace the role we have there. Every family's different. Every family's different. And there's all kinds of different families. We get that. Because the world's a broken place and, and, and it can be very different. And there's all sort of different situations. And we don't even have the time to go into all that this morning. But look at Timothy's own family. Who were his primary faith influencers? His mom and his grandmother. Would God have preferred his dad to also have been a primary faith influencer? Yeah, I think he would from what I can tell from God's word. But that's not the situation. Either his dad died lost or his dad was still lost and just not making an impact. Not enough that Paul even mentions him in 2 Timothy. Refers to him as a Greek but not as a believer. That's Timothy's context. That's Lois and Eunice's context. That's their family. Not your family. Your family might have similarities. Your family might be very different. We might have a situation where mom and dad both love Jesus. That's great. When mom and dad both love Jesus, that's not always the thing that happens. But that's what we want, right? Everybody wants that. That's a best case scenario. That's great. And if that's the truth, then the dad needs to step up to the plate and lead the spiritual home and not leave mom to be a Lois when she doesn't have to be. Sometimes mom has to operate in that function. She's the spiritual leader in the life of the child because dad's lost. That's the world we live in. And God can use that and bless that. And I believe there's a special place in the heart of God for those folks, and those women. But as dads, if we know Jesus and love Jesus, we've got to step up to the plate and take the ball and lead spiritually in the home. I told y'all several weeks ago that Michael Jordan was the greatest basketball player that ever lives. Now, I'm going to bring it up again. Because I've been hearing a lot of, I was listening to some, I was in the car the other day and I heard some sports talk radio. Now that there's a big debate now, right? Between is LeBron James the greatest basketball player that ever lived? Or is Michael Jordan the greatest basketball player that ever lived? And they always have these debates. Now I don't want to get into all that this morning. But I always tell people because, well, when I was growing up, it was Michael Jordan. As far as I'm concerned, it's still Michael Jordan. Now, here's why I'm a Michael Jordan fan. Because when there's two minutes to go in the game and, and there's, three-point difference in the game where the game's all tied up. I never had, when I watched and pulled for the Bulls, I never had to wonder who was going to get the ball for the last two minutes of the game and who was going to take pretty much every shot if it was possible. Michael Jordan was going to take the ball if he had to, right? Everybody knew who was getting the ball. He wanted the ball. He craved those situations. He didn't run from those situations. He wanted those situations like great players do, like leaders do. When it's crunch time, a leader just wants the ball. But there's a lot of dads, if we're not careful, that are happy to pass the ball off and to not leave in the home. One of the greatest gifts you can give your wife this Mother's Day is to step up to the plate and be the man God saved you and designed you to be. Some folks have a different family dynamic, like Timothy's mom or it might be the dad or it might be the mom, but one parent is spiritually disconnected. But let Timothy be a shining example to you of how God can use you. This is Paul's, the Apostle Paul, the greatest Christian as far as we're concerned to ever live. <laughs> he wrote most of the New Testament. His right-hand man, who he wrote two letters to, who he left in charge of Ephesus to appoint elders, the guy that he trusted more implicitly than anybody, 
was raised in that context. You are the missionary in your home. And praise God for you. Share the gospel, live with integrity and godliness, and be light. Maybe you're a grandparent. Maybe your kids aren't spiritually leading your grandkids. That happens. And you have a responsibility to love, to, to share, to pray, to not nag. To not nag. To love and to share and to pray. Nobody wants to be nagged, but everybody needs to be loved and to share with and to point them to Christ. You need to understand and embrace your family dynamic and your role. Every family, every person has a role in their family. And it might be the godly uncle or the godly aunt or it might be the godly brother or the godly sister. But God's placed you in a family context and he wants you to live out your faith and influence others with your faith for the glory of Jesus in that family. It starts there. And we need to, if we're going to, if we're going to embrace our role, we need to understand and embrace the importance of the Bible in the life of our children and our kids. 2 Timothy 3.15, I read to you. He tells Timothy that from childhood he was acquainted with the sacred writings which were able to make him wise for salvation. I just love that verse. Who was acquainting him with this Old Testament, these sacred writings? Well, obviously it was from childhood, so it was Lois and Eunice. And Paul is expressing confidence that the Old Testament was capable of pointing him to the Messiah, pointing him to Christ, because Christ came and fulfilled that law. And it, Jesus came and said, all that's pointing to me. And it readied his heart to hear about Jesus. That's how they preached the gospel when Jesus came, right? It wasn't that they just got up. And, they didn't just get up and say he rose from the dead. They got up and said he rose from the dead. Let me show you how that fits into the plan. And they quoted scripture and they pointed it back. And they showed them in the word of God how Jesus had fulfilled prophecy. That he was the Messiah. And now, some 2,000 plus years later, we have the Old Testament and the New Testament. We have double the sacred writing, right? And if your child's a little one, like my, child's, like my children are, those little Bible stories we share with them at bedtime or whenever it may be are of eternal significance. Because it is God's truth, it is God's word that is able to make them wise so that they can hear the gospel and believe the gospel. It's not just knowing the word that saves someone. But it's in the word that we hear about Jesus and what we must do to receive Jesus. And so it's important that we have the time and that we're pouring. It's kind of like their brains are little sponges and we're just pouring God's truth in so that when the squeeze happens, truth comes out. And it's not always easy. You know? I mean, listen, we don't, the Malone thing, let me just go ahead and tell you. We struggle just like everybody else does with this. We have the same time constraints and, and, and tired and kids that don't pay attention. And last night we're having family Bible time. We, we typically do it at bedtime. And we do it in Canon's room and everybody gets on the bed and we read a Bible story and we sing a couple of songs and we have a little prayer time together. And so I'm reading the Bible story and we've got a few different ones we use. I'll mention in a minute. And we're reading the story of Jesus calling the first disciples and about how they're out fishing and Jesus goes and tells them to come. And they see the pictures and the fish. And, and Eden never pays attention, right? She's two. She's running around and she's bringing other books to us. It's, you know. And Canon's four. Sometimes he's not paying attention and sometimes he is and sometimes he isn't. And so we're reading the story and all of a sudden Cannon wants to know what's up with all the fish. I said, well, they caught the fish. Why did they pull them out of the water? I said, well, they're going to eat them. Why would they eat them? They're animals. <laughs> He's a vegetarian. And other than compressed chicken nuggets. He, he goes for that. I guess that's not real meat. I don't know. Um, I said, well, buddy, I said, fish tastes good. So we end up in this whole conversation about eating fish 
He ain't hearing anything about following Jesus from that point on, right? He's four. It ain't all sunshine and rainbows and perfection over there at our house and just like it isn't at your house either. But this is what we do. We're intentional about acquainting them with the only thing that is able to make them wise for salvation. And if you want to embrace your role in the family as spiritual leaders, you have to try, you can't try to usurp God's role. You have to embrace your role. And that means you have to share God's truth, not simply your truth. Not just homespun, great little sayings that you, you grew up with. All that's fine and dandy. But if we're not sharing God's truth, but we are sharing our truth all the time, you know who's God in your family? If we're going to let God be God, we've got to take his word and share his word with our children. Get them under Bible teaching. Talk about and teach the Bible at home. Let us partner together as a church. It's so important. Here's some helpful tools we use in our family. I just want to, I think I've done this before, but I like to always point people to it when we do something like this. Anything Sally Lloyd-Jones writes. We've only got a couple of them. Jesus Storybook Bible. Every family should have one. Best thing I've ever seen for children. She's got a devotional as well that's, that's good. Gospel Project has some great Bibles and stories for toddlers and kids on up for all different ages. You can get those online, different places. Gospel Project. We use those too. We've got a few different ones that we rotate around and that we use. With Canon, uh, we started uh, a catechism for children. Basically, it's a, you know, who is God? You know, God is spirit, you know. It goes through all this stuff. Who made you? God made me and all that sort of stuff. And so, and we've got like 50 or 60 of these little sayings that he's learning that are just kind of putting truth in his mind. And he's on lot number 12, right? And he's pretty good. He gets around 10, 11, 12. It's a little rusty. But just, just pouring water on the sponge is all we're doing. He don't even understand some of the stuff he's saying. If you ask him, and how many persons does God exist, he'll tell you three. And then he always, because he's a little OCD about it, but he'll go, but there's not many gods. <laughs> there's only one. He's very OCD about it. Who are they, Canon? He'll, you know, he'll say it in some goofy voice, but he'll say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean anything that, as far as that doesn't tell me that when he's 17 or that when he's 70, that he'll love and follow Jesus. I can't guarantee that. I just pour him water on the sponge. And sure enough, we haven't really started it with Eden yet because she's two. And last night, she spits out three of them just because she's hearing him do it all the time. Talk about God's truth in your home. You're not going to be perfect at it. You're going to mess up. You're going to teach them some things that are good from the Bible, and they're going to learn plenty of stuff from you that's not good, not from the Bible. Because you're a sinner. And that's okay. We're all sinners. We're all messed up. But we're not just sinners. If you're a Christian, you've been redeemed. You're a saint. You're holy. You've been set apart by Christ. And you have a mission in the world and in your home. But be intentional. Leverage your time. Be open, be authentic, be consistent. And when you mess up, confess. I have to do that with Canon sometimes. I'm sorry, bud. I shouldn't have did that. I shouldn't have got that upset over that. That was silly. I'm sorry. Sometimes we have to do that. And, it's, and if you say, so well, my kids are older. My kids are like teenagers. Leverage your time. Be consistent. Be authentic. Be open. Talk about things. Talk about God's word. And when you mess up, confess. It doesn't change. The main tool, the word, is still the same. We do some things differently. We, they're at a different stage in life. You're at a different stage in life. But the, the basics stay the same. And if we want to impact our children spiritually, it starts with simply wanting to. And if you want to this morning, that's, that's great. You can start there. God can use that. You never know who you're raising. 
I don't think Eunice and Lois, when they were pouring into Timothy's life, knew that one day this apostle would come through town and would proclaim that Jesus Christ was the Messiah and had risen from the dead. And her little boy would believe in Jesus and be baptized. And then Paul would come back to town a few years later and say, I want to take him with me. And that 2,000 years later, we'd be written, reading letters that Paul wrote to Timothy. That his ministry would influence thousands and millions and millions of people. That he would be the chief encourager and really the right-hand man of the most quoted the most quoted of all Christians. She had no idea. We have no idea. We just pray and we invest and we pour water on the sponge and we live out our faith. We live out our faith in front of them. We own our role in the family. We take responsibility and we invest in our children. Maybe today you don't live your faith because maybe you don't possess a genuine one and we always want to invite you to repent of your sin and believe in Christ. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. And he rose again according to the scriptures. If you'll repent and believe the gospel, you can be saved. You can be rescued from your sin, from your separation from God. If you're a believer today, what's your family dynamic? What's your role there? How does God want to use you and your, fa you and your family? Are you a praying grandmother? Are you a discipling father? Are you a faithful daughter or son? Do you own your role? You need to step up to the plate this morning and be the missionary in your context and your family that God's called you to be. We're going to pray this morning, and I want to give you an opportunity to pray and just talk to God this morning and confess things to God and do business with God, so to speak. And then here in just a moment, we're going to stand, and we're going to worship together. If I can pray for you about anything, if you've got questions about following Christ or want to surrender your life to Christ today, we'd love to talk with you about that as well. Let's pray together. Father.